Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Carol Weston. Carol is the author of 16 books, fiction and nonfiction, and has been the Dear Carol advice columnist at Girls Life since the magazine's first issue in 1994. Her newest book is Speed of Life, which receives starred reviews in Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, and School Library Journal and Booklist. New York Times Book Review called it perceptive, funny, and moving. About Ava and Pip, New York Times Book Review said, this is a book about sisterhood, but also a love letter to language. Carol has been on today, CNN, Oprah, and The View, and teaches writing at the New York Society Library. She's also big on cats, walking, skiing, and art museums. Her husband, Rob Ackerman, a playwright who has done props for the SNL Film Unit for 25 years, was previously on the show. Carol also published three personal essays in 2020, Book Club with My Husband, Why My App is So Very Proud of Me, and How I Finally, Finally, Finally Became a Novelist, which can all be found on our website. Carol, that was a very long bio. I hope I did you justice. Even more. You know, Thank career. you. I want to meet um, that amazing person. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're this is what happens excited. if you live long enough <laughs> and you keep writing, then you've got a longer resume. Yes. Whenever I say a long resume, it's always a good thing, of course, you know, the longer your portfolio is. So we're really excited to talk to you. As I mentioned, you know, we had Rob on before, who's awesome and a friend of the podcast. So really great to officially meet you and have you on the show and hear about your work. So my first question is always, where are you in the world? I want to say that you and Rob are based in New York City, but are you in the city right now or are you somewhere else? That is a great question because we are somewhere else. When I was in the middle of sixth grade, my family moved to Armonk, New York, which is in Westchester, and but kind of rural. And we lived, my family and I grew up near a lake. So Rob and I came out here to shelter in place. And we're so pleased to be here that I think we're moving our center of gravity to Armonk. We ended up growing corn in the backyard. All the, all the suburban neighbors were like, I don't think that's going to work. You know the carrot seed, that little kid's book where the big brother says, it won't grow up, it won't grow up. And then he has a great big carrot in the wheelbarrow. Anyway, we, we ended up with this incredible corn crop and we live in Armonk and it's my parents' house, but it's our house and it's just, I love it here. And so does Rob. So we're here. How has your quarantine pandemic experience been? I know at one point you had talked about and written about taking walks that was, I'm assuming, helpful to you as a writer as well. So how has your experience been and what have you been doing to kind of stay inspired to write? Well, curiously, since this is the writer's experience, from a writer's point of view, it's been, it's been inspiring. I mean, I'm not unaware of the travails in the world and how dangerous and contagious this is and how scary and, and awful. But as a writer and somebody who's used to being at home and cocooning and thinking about things, you know, being at home isn't so hard. And when you're a writer and when you're writing fiction, you always want the stakes to be high. Well, the stakes are automatically high during a pandemic if you 
especially in the beginning when we were all so panicky that if we just touched the, you know, if we, if we got money from an ATM, that might, that might be that. To me, it just heightened my sense of awareness. And I think it made me more observant. So the first essay I wrote during, that got published in May in CNN, it was about walking because all I was doing was walking. And I'd never even known that there was this little app, that thing on your iPhone with the little red heart that tells you how many steps. I just was not a person who cared about how many steps I took. But then in the early part of the pandemic, I would just look down and say, 8,000. Well, heck, I can do 10,000. I can do 12,000 and walking and walking. And so that was when you're walking, you're really thinking and you're observing and you're watching other people. And you're so the pandemic for many writers and artists has been a, a time of fertility. And for others, it's been a you know time where they felt blocked and certainly impossibly hard on actors. So again, I don't want to, I don't want to be insensitive. I'm just answering since you're asking me, I'm, I'm answering. For me, it's been a, a productive time because I'm used to being alone, alone with Rob. <laughs> and you teach. So what advice do you give to those writers that you teach? Do you have advice for those who you mentioned may be struggling right now? And my teaching has been you know, remote and it's been really, I've, I'm passing the baton a little bit, if I may be honest, because for me, teaching in person was so delightful. The course was called Prompt. And my students would come around the table and there was no homework and there was no pressure. And I always began it by saying, guys, I just want you to remember how fun it is to write because every single writer who is honest can tell you how twisted we get. We get twisted up. We get worried about whether people will like our work. So when I teach my prompt class, the whole point is for people to walk in and for me to say, you know, lightning or salt shaker or your grandfather's hands, or whatever the word is, and for them, and then to say, okay, I'm setting my clock for 10 minutes, and then everybody writes like crazy people, because they know it's a safe space. And then 10 minutes, I have this little gentle alarm, and we share it. And it's very, it's not a master class. It's not trying to help you think critically. It's trying to help you think creatively. So my advice to writers is to remember that your sloppy copy, your messy or as Hemingway said, your shitty first draft is really just for you to get the ink on the page or the, you know, to get your hands on the keyboard just right. Later, you fix it up or throw it out or start over and try to be, you know, try to clean it up. But in the beginning, when you're writing, when the muse is singing to you, you just got to get it all down. Since you mentioned Rob, Rob and I both taught a few years ago at Middlebury College as a for the January term, because they have a January semester where you get a full credit. He taught playwriting and I taught oh. writing first person. And that's where I that's where I realized just I wanted people to, you know, when we read it aloud, especially when I was at Middlebury and they were they were getting grades, you know, you want to help people not repeat words and help them not use cliches and help them understand that good writing has to be vibrant, but also just to get it down and to realize that in 10 minutes. You can write something amazing. That helps me when I'm writing. When I say, oh, come on, Carol, just pretend it's your prompt class. <laughs> pretend you're a student in your prompt class. Just write for 10 minutes about the ladybug that you saw. And suddenly you'll have a lot more than the ladybug. Love that. My next question is in regards to your origin story. Now, what's interesting about this is that I read your essay, How I Finally, Finally, Finally Became a Novelist. And in a way, you kind of walk through your career 
trajectory to the point at which you kind of wrote your first novel. Could you walk us through, you know, for the audience's perspective, your career up until this point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was a hard essay to write because as a friend of mine said, it was a capsule autobiography, but I was lucky enough to go to to Yale. And can I say, it's funny, like my dad didn't get to go to college and then our daughter went to Yale. So suddenly we went from this, you know, first generation American to like old blue family. And when America works, that's the good stuff, you know, that, oh, there's, but let me not get backtracked. My origin story. Okay. So here I was sixth grade, middle of the year, suddenly dropped off in Armonk and I didn't know how to be a sixth grader. So it was very discombobulating because people were talking about popularity and periods and pimples and I didn't, you know, and boobs and I didn't know anything. I was like a kid and suddenly I was a preteen overnight and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So it turns out here I am an advice columnist for mostly preteen girls and a lot of my books are for girls or for teenagers. But my first, my first published work, besides kind of the local paper reporting on the boys lacrosse team, because there was no girls lacrosse team. My first published work was Seventeen Magazine. And I guess I just wrote about, as much as possible, I always write from the heart. The more you can write about your own personal experience, the more you're probably reaching other people. If you're really being honest about how it felt to be, you know, to have your first love or your first breakup or to have to feel looked by somebody you care about or to lose a parent, the more you can write about something deeply personal, often that will reach the most people too. So I wrote for 17 and hey, that worked and they paid me a little bit of money. That was so exciting. And then Rob and I got married way too young, though happily that worked too. So I started writing for Brides Magazine and Glamour and Cosmo. And I just was sort of writing what I was going through. Parents Magazine, American Baby. But I wanted to write a book. I had been a literature major and I just wanted to write a book. So I did. I suddenly, I wrote in my late 20s, I wrote a book called Girl Talk, All the Stuff Your Sister Never Told You. And I just put everything I knew into that book. And I was a very earnest young thing. And I really wanted to be as helpful as I could to the clueless 12-year-old who I knew so well, because that girl was me. And also Robert's little sister, who was you know, 12 when I met her and was suddenly off to college. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's so much you need to know. So I put it all in Girl Talk. And then I put a P.O. box at the end in case anyone wanted to write me. We lived in Chicago at the time. And letters just started pouring in about abusive parents, about incest, about rape, about suicide, stuff that I didn't really, I mean, I wasn't a social worker, but I, so I was kind of in over my head, but I was such a nice person <laughs> and earnest even then and hardworking that I just wrote every single kid back, every single kid. It was a little nuts. And after 20 years, I realized, wow, I probably should be a little more ruthless than I tried to be. But I still pretty much, if someone writes me, I, you know, I'm so easy to find and I probably will write you right back. Anyway, Girl Talk was, was a very successful book. Who knew? And I went on book tours and things like that. And then I wrote another book for girls called Girl Talk About Guys. Because, Court, most of those letters were about guys. There's a guy I like. <laughs> There's a guy I like who's going out with my best friend. <laughs> There's a guy I like, but he doesn't know I'm alive. Or, you know, all the confusion wrapped around romance for kids. But then I wrote a book called How to Honeymoon. <laughs> and then Rob and I had a, had a daughter. So I wrote a book called From Here to Maternity. 
but I really wanted to write a novel because that had been the dream in college. That was my mom's dream. It was my mom's nightmare. I had to go to therapy to work this out. Like, why can't I write a novel? Number one, it's hard to write a novel. But number two, I think I didn't want to somehow like show up my mom or upset my mom. And so I had to get the shrink to help me know that my mother would still love me. And I remember going home and putting a post-it on my computer that just said, excuse me, but I have a novel to write. And then I gave myself permission to try to write a novel. But it still didn't get published. The world didn't care that I you know, surmounted my, my own or jumped over my own obstacles. So it was really still a long route to get a novel that was good. But then all of a sudden, when I was 40, which was quite a while ago, Knopf told my agent that, sure, they'd give me $10,000 for my first novel, which was called The Diary of Melanie Martin, which was a novel for girls. I still may write a novel for adults at some point, but I realized I know so much about girls. And I had, Rob and I have two daughters, and I was so firmly planted in girl world and all my own childhood memories were kind of a girl trying to figure out everything. So the right what you know kicked in and I wrote, I started, I wrote seven novels for girls before I wrote Speed of Life for Teenagers. You mentioned Speed of Life. I would love to dive into your process for writing the book. But before I do, I want to shout out the article because I think for those who are listening to your trajectory there, there's obviously an amazing article that if people are interested, they can read. And it's on Yale Alumni Magazine, right? Yeah, it's a Yale Alumni Magazine. It's the current one, actually. Well, it's a September-October issue, but it's on my website, carolweston.com. Or if you probably Google Carol Weston Yale writing, it would probably pop up. Just because as you walked through that, you know, we heard kind of your abridged version, but obviously that article is a little bit more detailed and really great. So for those listening, they were interested in your story. That's a great article to go to. As far as speed of life, I would love to talk about the process. Would you mind if I just read the description real quick before we dive into it? No, please do. Speed of life. What happens when the keeper of your most embarrassing secrets starts dating your dad? Sophia wonders if 14 might be the worst possible age to lose your mom. Talking with her dad about puberty and SEX is super awkward, even though he is a gynecologist. And when she wants to talk about her mom, her friends don't know what to say and her dad gets sad. When Sophia discovers Dear Kate, an advice columnist for 15 Magazine, she's grateful to have someone to confide in about everything from crushes to mourning, someone who is completely, wonderfully anonymous. Feels ideal until Sophia's dad introduces her to his new girlfriend, Catherine Baird, aka Dear Kate. I love this. Obviously, it's pulling a lot from your own life. That seems to be a theme through your work, right? A lot of pulling from your own life. And, and I find it easiest to pull from my own life. I obviously, you can't just, every novel can't be a memoir and people should stretch. But even now, now with cultural appropriation, you know, society worries if you stretch too far. They don't want you to be writing about something you don't know. So you just have to work out where you're comfortable pulling from your own life, but not having it just the Carol novel, Carol novel, Carol novel. That would be boring. Exactly. So how do you walk that line between kind of taking what actually happened and adding the fiction to it? Well, it's funny in this, I mean, of my eight novels, I would say Speed of Light is by far the most autobiographical with uh, Ava and Pip a close second because Ava and Pip is about sibling rivalry. And I felt some of that. And when I finished writing the book and the book came out, it's like it fixed, you know, it, it just sort of healed. It's sometimes if you write and you're really trying to be as honest as you can, 
you can get a real catharsis from writing something too. But Speed of Life is about a girl who moves from the Upper West Side in New York City to, of all places, Armonk, New York, two places I knew well, and has a grandfather who lives in Spain. Rob and I met in Spain. We we know Spain very well. So the three places that this book is set are the places where, you know, my my heart's homes. Whereas again, the Abe and Pip book, that's set in a place called Misty Oaks. Well, I made up Misty Oaks. Or actually a girl who, one of my girls who writes to me from Girls Life magazine at my Dear Carol column, the return address was Misty Oaks. And I just thought, oh, I love that. Misty Oaks. And it just stayed in my brain for years until I finally got to use it in a three book series. But you're asking about speed of life. So I will tell you, I was 25 when my dad died. I had a great dad. It was beyond devastating. I didn't see it coming. My life separated into before and after. And while I'd written a few essays about losing my dad, I hadn't really, I guess, even wanted to just dive into all that compartmentalized pain, you know? But if you're writing, and this is a podcast about process, some of those places where you're broken, that's where your good material is. If you're from a family where everybody was yelling, there might be some material there. In my case, you know, my dad died and it was devastating. So I thought I'm going to be brave and I'm going to write about it. But I didn't give it to a 25-year-old girl. I gave it to an eighth grader. And it wasn't her dad, it was her mom. So I still had that little bit of degree of separation. So yes, it's a book about a girl who who loses her mom, reaches out to an advice columnist, who of course writes her back, and does not realize that by and by her dad, who had been grieving hard with her, is a little less sad because he suddenly got a new woman in his life. And it's the advice columnist. And when people write me, they don't tell me their real names especially if it's online. I don't know if it's Misty Oaks or the girl next door. So when a girl writes me for my advice column, I don't know if she lives right next door to me or if she lives in Hawaii, because if it's an email and it's from Candy Girl (laughs) or something like that, it doesn't, I don't have the real name. So in the book, Sophia is writing to the woman who's actually going out with her dad, but she has no idea that she is that the advice columnist who's helping her out is also really right there in her real life. So that's kind of a a fun spin in the novel that happens after about a third of the novel, that revelation. If I may, Court, I'm going to read one paragraph. Yeah, maybe it's like two I would love that. out loud, which is really the first page of a book. Because since writers are tuning in, I think voice is so important. And it's hard to teach voice. But if you have a voice, you got to harness that voice. If you have a voice, And everybody's got one, but so many people put too much gobbledygook in the way or get confused about, you know, big words are not better than (laughs) short words. So I want to read you just the first page of this book so that you can hear the voice because that's a big part of warning. This is kind of a sad story, at least at first. So if you don't like sad stories, maybe you shouldn't read this. I mean, I'd understand if you put it down and watched cat videos instead. I like cat videos too. Then again, this book is already in your hands. It starts and ends on January 1st. And I was thinking of calling it The Year My Whole Life Changed, or Life, Death, and Kisses, or maybe even The Year I Grew Up. For me, being 14 was hard, really hard. Childhood was a piece of cake. 
being a kid in New York City and spending summers in Spain, that was all pretty perfect looking back. But being 14 was like climbing a mountain in the rain in flip-flops. I hoped I'd wind up in a different place, but I kept tripping and slipping and falling and wishing it weren't way too late to turn around. This book does have funny parts, and I learned two giant facts. Number one, everything can change in an instant, for worse, sure, but also for better. Number two, sometimes if you just keep climbing, you get an amazing view. You see what's behind you and what's ahead of you and the big surprise, what's inside you. So I wanted to read that for a few reasons. We're talking about process. I think I wrote, I know I wrote this page about two years after I thought the book was finished. Like I finished the book, it got rejected here and there. That's always sad. But then sometimes the editors will say, I really liked this book, but, and then they'll say something super smart. So it's like having a bunch of great teachers. I mean, I don't wish rejection on on your listeners, but I know I still get things rejected and you have to, you know, you have to carry on. And if you can get something from those rejection letters, instead of just ripping them into a million pieces, you're going to end up with a better book. So I kept making my book better and then I would put it aside. I knew it was really important to me to get it right. And so I just would put it aside for like a year sometimes. And then wrote this page after, after the whole book was done. This book started out four points of view, the girl, her dad, the advice columnist, and the advice columnist's daughter. And Knopf said, why don't you try it with just two points of view, just the kids, not the adults? And I said, okay, it was a lot of work, but I did it. Then they said, try it with just one point of view. So I did it. And then they said, try it first person instead of third person. I mean, can you believe this? And I did it. And the thing is, yeah, this was nuts, but A, I'm a writer and I apparently love to write. And B, it was getting better and better. Now, Kanop ended up walking away from the book, which was sort of heartbreaking at the time, but I just kept making it better. And then when Sourcebooks, my new publisher, took it, I was thrilled. And they did a beautiful job publishing it and, you know, came out an audiobook. Right now it's it's getting looked at, who knows, in Hollywood. It's just books. Sometimes they take a long time to write. Sometimes they take a long time to publish. Sometimes you should give up on a project. You know, not everything is meant to be, just like every romance isn't meant to be. But sometimes you really want to just keep working on it. So, so this page, which I wrote years after I thought the book was finished, I was really happy with it. And I felt like it was, it added to the book. And then when the book came out in German by Hanser, Publishing, they called it Climbing a Mountain in the Rain in Flip Flops. That was the title they used. Isn't that funny? Instead of Speed of Life. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30 day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city. While our producer, Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. 
Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickering Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. What about those steps you take between when you're whether it's doing research or whether it's writing an outline, developing the characters, all the things you do kind of in that middle area between the idea and when you actually sit down to start writing. Can you walk us through how you started to develop this book? Well, I found a piece of paper in my pretty messy office that was kind of that I did 10 years before I before the book came out. So it said 2007 on it. And it said chapters, just said January, February, March, all the way down a whole year. And then kind of what I thought happened, like January, school starts, but they're taking down the Christmas tree. That's how the book begins. I think Rob and I were taking down our Christmas tree. And I thought, wow, there's so many TV shows and movies where everybody's decorating the Christmas tree. But all those people who decorated the Christmas tree took the tree down. And you don't see that in the movies. They skip over that terribly you know, sad or bittersweet time when you're just putting the ornaments back in boxes. And I thought, you know what? I want to start a book that starts with taking down the Christmas tree and ends with maybe a happy Christmas party, but just takes a kid through that long year where she realizes her mom's not coming back and she can either sit under a tree and suck her thumb forever, or she can figure out how to, you know, keep marching forward without her mom and figure out how to kind of hold her mom inside and that you can't rush grief. I guess some of the things I learned from being an advice columnist all these, you know, quarter century help nourish my fiction. So it's not so much that I research and research and then I start writing. I think sometimes a nonfiction book can be like that. With fiction, for me at least, if I if I have a scene that comes to me, I just write it down. And sometimes it's a little bit like a patchwork quilt at the other end where you're trying to make sure everything's going in the right order. But And with fiction, when the muses are singing, if I go to sleep, right before I go to sleep, I'll think, well, so what did Abuelo, like the grandfather, what did he say? Or what did what was it like when these kids finally get together? And then in the middle of the night, if I wake up, damn, if there isn't a sentence or two that I can write down. So I always have a place where there's a very dim light, like a place with a dimmer or a makeup mirror or something, you know, and a and a sharp pencil or, or a pen and paper. And then I write a sentence down in the middle of the night. And I don't always use it, but sometimes I use it. Sometimes that's just a little piece of magic that happens if you ask. So you have to ask when you go to sleep. You have to say, come on, help me out here. <laughs> and don't get anguished about it. But if you wake up with something, you write it down. So anyway, it's just, it's honor the muse. Somebody once told me that. And honor your gifts. If you're listening to this, it's because you maybe want to write a novel or a play, or you like the idea of being a writer. So if suddenly you get a good sentence. If a book is getting whispered to you, you can't just hope it'll stick around. Write all those things down. Put them in a drawer. Sometimes I don't have time to suddenly you know, work for hours on a novel, but I put these little scraps of paper in a, a drawer or a bag or whatever, and I, I know that they're there. And then I'm so happy when, I, when it might just say outdoor shower. And I'm like, it's like the prompt class. It's like outdoor shower. I know exactly what I wanted to do with those words. Thank you that I wrote them down. Write stuff down. Love that. 
you mentioned you don't usually do the research in such a linear process before you start writing. But can you walk us through the writing process itself and how does it compare? Because obviously you write essays and you write for advice columns. So can you walk us through the differences for writing through those different mediums? Yes. And I should also say that I've been working on a novel about the girl, the princess inside the Velasquez painting Las Meninas, which is sort of the crown jewel, arguably, of the Prado. Not even arguably, it is. <laughs> Las Meninas by Velasquez is, is the greatest painting in Spain and arguably the world. Anyway, I got all obsessed with Margarita. So that required a lot of research. I couldn't just make that stuff up. Much harder to write a historical novel. I'm still chiseling away at that one. But for instance, if I'm sitting down to write my advice column, Dear Carol, for Girls Life magazine, well, when the girls write me, if someone writes me a pretty interesting letter and I write her right back, almost extemporaneously at the computer, but if I thought, oh, that's a pretty good answer, I'll kind of cut and paste the whole thing and put it in a folder. So fortunately, then I have this folder that says GL Q&A, Girls Life Q&A. And so when I'm ready to write my column, I'll just empty that folder onto a big document. And then I got to clean it up, which takes a couple of days, but, and make sure the order works so that I've got columns about, about love and friendship and getting along with your mom and, you know, hitting puberty and COVID and how hard now it is to keep up your friends and keep up with your schoolwork. And, you know, it's much harder right this minute to be a parent of teens or to be a teen. But anyway, that's the process for writing the column. For writing an essay, usually if something, like I wrote an essay for Publishers Weekly that came out in, I think it was a June issue, and it was called Book Clubbing with My Husband, with Rob. Rob's a playwright, as you know. So I've been in the same book club forever. But during COVID, it was a little bit easier for me to write, maybe the, active, the activity of writing than it was to sit down and read. So what I found was that if I listened to books, audio books, with either Audible or Libro, .fm, then your money goes to the independent bookstores, which are so important to support. So you download your, your audiobook, and then Rob and I would just go walking around, and we'd hold my phone, we'd put it on speaker, and my essay was called Book Clubbing with My Husband, and it was just about being in a book club for so many years, but suddenly now being almost in this separate book club with just Rob. When you write an essay, you just look at something extra carefully, and you write down paragraphs or sentences or words as they come to you. And then it's almost like doing a puzzle. So many people did puzzles during COVID. I wasn't one of those people as it happened. But I feel like with my writing, it's like finding the frame, finding the, the big chunk of middle that's important, and then filling in, all the, filling in all the pieces so that it's coherent and beautiful. So that's my way of doing puzzles, I guess. Love that. You had also mentioned earlier the process of getting rejected and how that kind of helps you kind of move forward. For those writers who are listening and going through that process, I know it's something that people are always curious about is the query letter process and finding an agent and that kind of thing. Do you have any suggestions for those listening for how they can kind of get their book published? Well, yeah. And also, let me say, it's not as though I love rejection. I hate rejection. And it's not as though I'm got a thick skin. I don't. I still, as I said, you know, like for instance, that essay about walking that CNN published, but you know, the New York Times said, no, thanks. The essay about book clubs that Publishers Weekly published, but Washington Post said, no, thanks. If you write something, it's pretty hard. If it's an essay, you don't query anybody. You just send it out. You send it to 
if you Google op-ed, you get these these over the transom places, but sometimes they actually work. Like, you know, the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these, there's so many places that do publish essays and they really do want essays. And if you really do write a good essay, somebody might publish it. It always feels like such a long shot. But and sometimes they don't even give you any money and other times they do. But you have to be super resilient and persistent. You cannot query anybody to say, I want to write an essay about making friends during COVID because we don't know if it'll be a good essay. You don't even know if it'll be a good essay. So just go ahead and write the essay. Try to make it you know, 650 words or, or 800 words or 1,000 words, but don't write a 3,000-word essay because nobody publishes. Hardly anybody publishes big, long essays. Sometimes it helps to look at the publications that you like to read and to notice what kind of stuff they seem to be publishing. I will not kid you. It's really hard. I, every time I get an essay in, I feel like it's doing a little victory lap because it's so much easier for them to just, it, you send stuff out and it goes into the inky void. No matter who you are, it's, it's, it's frustrating. But what I did say in standby is if it's a novel and you're getting a respectful rejection letter, usually they will tell you why they didn't like it. They want it edgier. They want something. And maybe, you know, when people tell me they want something edgier, I don't really listen to that very much because I don't write about car chases or dinosaurs. For me, writing about COVID, as I said, the stakes are already so high that that kind of worked for me. But I don't write dystopia stuff. And yet here we are in a kind of a dystopia ourselves. One other thing that's helpful, I think, Mm -hmm. I like to have my, I don't know if it's called beta readers, or before I send anything out into the world, I give it to my brother, I give it to my high school best friend, I give it to Robert, who's very hard on it, because he's a fellow writer, so he's not my first reader. My first readers are the people who will be gentle, but honest. So my very best friend who lives, literally used to live in in the house right next door to me here in Armonk now lives in Minnesota, but Judy knows that she's happy to read an essay of mine and to tell me what she thinks. And just knowing that she's happy to read it and will probably like it helps me have a destination for the essay. And helps. And if she says, I really like it, and then has suggestions, that gives me wind in my sails, which I need because <laughs> these little sailboats that are out on sea, they're all about to capsize. So it's very helpful. Robert's mom, who sadly died at 94, not too long ago, but she was always my very first reader because no matter what I gave her, she always said, oh, this is wonderful. I don't know how you do it. Whereas Robert would be, Rob is more like, oh, Carol, this isn't working. You're being really wordy. You know, we need the hard criticism, but we also need the wind in our sails. So figure out who's going to like your stuff and be willing to read it because I write for kids. I also have 11-year-olds read my stuff. Sometimes I give them a crisp $20 bill to read a novel for kids and they're kind of thrilled because they'll get their name and the acknowledgements and sometimes they'll tell me a funny story that works its way into the book but find your readers that's really important helpful readers not too critical readers love that carol are you ready for a few bonus questions we call a series of seemingly random questions yes the first one is for those who are listening who are enjoying your takes here and interested in your career, or maybe want to reach out to you, whether it's for Dear Carol or for a personal inquiry. Do you have suggestions for if somebody wants to reach out and ask you whether it's about writing or their life? Oh, sure. I mean, if you go to carolweston.com, it says, you know, contact me. But 
but it's actually hi at carolweston.com <laughs> or carol at carolweston.com. I am literally the easiest person to reach. Sometimes I'm surprised when people work hard to find me. I'm, I think I'm in the phone book, you know? The next question, if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? Does it have to be fast food? If it has to be fast food... Well, we throw that in there more for comedic reasons, but you can choose... Well, I do like potatoes, as Robert can attest. So I think Wendy's, you know, go to Wendy's and let's each have a baked potato and all the stuffings. Living or dead? Wow. You know, living, I'd say, oh, Judy Bloom, I would love to get to know you because she was sort of a role model for so long. But, you know, dead, hell, let's go with Cervantes or Shakespeare. Trying to think. I was a French Spanish comparative literature major. Do I want Proust? If it's Proust, we have to go out for Madeleines. Maybe Proust and Madeleines. I think they sell them at places like McDonald's. Oh, now I've got too many, too many restaurants and too many authors. <laughs> the next, technically second to last question. If you could choose one learning or insight from your entire career to pass along to the writers who are listening right now, what would you say? Don't give up. That's it. I mean, you know, sometimes girls <laughs> will that. say, I've liked the same guy for three years, but he still doesn't know I'm alive, but I don't want to give up. And I'm like, honey, 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 it's not giving up if you lift your eyes and notice who else is out there, you know. But if you, you know, speed of life, I did not give up on that book. And I did not give up on being a, a novelist, even though the world for the longest time, like really, you know, until I was 40, wanted me to keep being an advice columnist. And I enjoyed that. And I, you know, I was on Oprah and The View and Montel Williams. I was on Montel Williams like 12 times as sort of the go-to teen advice person. But I wanted, I wanted to write a novel and I worked hard. It didn't come easily, but I, I didn't give up. The last, very last question. Did you have fun talking to us about your process? I know we barely scratched the tip of the iceberg for your actual writing process, but it's been a lot of fun. Oh, I absolutely did. And really, thank you so much. It's flattering and it's a privilege for someone to say, hey, tell me about, you know, tell me about your, your life and how you got to where you are. Because certainly Rob and I both feel like we could get farther. It's not as though we were patting ourselves on the back all day long. But, you know, if you stay at it long enough, then it is, it is nice when suddenly you've got a little stack of books that somehow you, you created. It's crazy. And it did, especially since I'm in my childhood home, it does feel like kind of what goes around comes around. I mean, here I am in the in the same house where I bought a typewriter. You know, that was the first, that was the most expensive thing I ever bought with my own money was an electric typewriter. And I remember my dad took me to the store and it was like $130. And I didn't have that money in my purse, though I was quite the babysitter. So dad bought it, but then I owed him $100 and I was in high school. But then I came home and I gave him all these little crinkly bills and he could not believe I had $100 in this striped kitty cat piggy bank, but I did. And that was, you know, that was the tool I wanted. So, and here's the house. I'm still in the same house. It's crazy. So thank you. I loved the chance to think about all this. And I thank you for giving me that opportunity. And I'm wishing all your listeners the best. And I really hope to read what they've written too, to see their bylines. A Speed of Life is on sale now. If you are listening right now, please check it out. Carol, did you want to plug anything else? I know you've got a website, carolweston.com. Well, I mean, if you like to listen to books, Speed of Life is also an audible. And my books for, for younger kids, Ava and Pip, for like 10-year-old and up, 
Ava and Taco Cat and Ava XOX. Right now, somebody's turning those into audiobooks, but you can certainly order them in a jiffy off Amazon, but it's always nicer to, to phone those independent bookstores. But yeah, if you've, got, if you've got daughters or sons or teenagers, I've got a book for you. So thank you. And thank you as well. We really appreciate your insights and time, Carol. It's a pleasure to finally meet and talk to you and hear about your life and your work and your process. So thank you so much again. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.